Welcome to Resource on the Go, a podcast from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual violence and sexual assault. My name is Darren Dorsey. I'm an expert in sexual violence prevention and organizational equity and co-founder of Rooting Movements, which is a consulting firm that helps organizations ensure that their internal practices are consistent with the values that drive the change they intend to make in society. In this podcast series, I'm speaking with Black leaders, advocates, and movement workers about their experiences in the movement to end gender-based violence. Chapman. Paris offers that our communities already have the solutions, but oftentimes aren't properly resourced to co-create the liberation that we seek. Over a decade of direct service, facilitation, coaching, leadership, and more has afforded Paris the tools to provide lovingly critical analysis of power, history, and collective and individual experience in order to make recommendations that help organizations stay accountable to the communities they serve. Paris kindly and unwaveringly insists that centering the people most marginalized is integral to creating realistic solutions for our communities. Paris also identifies as a perpetually fierce survivor of violence that loves volleyball, performing arts, and talking story. They're born and raised all over Duwamish, Muckleshoot, Puyallup, and Nisqually territory, currently colonially known as Seattle to Spanaway can likely tell you where to find the best cookies in the area, and proud to be the grandchild of black migrants from Mississippi, Texas, Louisiana, and proud to be son of their children born and raised in Seattle. Paris uses their lived experience and that of their elders, ancestors, and all the relationships along the way to inform their own ways of life at their intersectional approach to support organizations that seek to reduce and or end harm. All right, Paris Chapman, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast hosted by the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on anti-Blackness and the movement to end gender-based violence. I'm super excited to talk to you, talk about your perspective, your experiences, um, and for folks to learn from you. Um, to kind of get started, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit in your words about who you are and, and your role in the movement to end gender-based violence? Yeah, um, so hi, I'm Paris Chapman, I use they, them pronouns. Um, a little bit about who I am. Uh, I am born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I am very black. Um, I'm also of mixed ethnic identities. Um, I come to this work first and foremost as a person who grew up in a very in a very Black 90s experience um, with my family out here doing all kinds of stuff from the corporate rooms to the streets and um, very much wanting to see my family, my community respect each other for all of the work that they do um, to make sure that we're all safe and fed and treated well. So 
the work is very personal to me on so many levels and I'm being vague about it because I know we'll get into some of the details later. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very personal to me. On a professional level, um, I've worked in various social worky kind of spaces for the past uh, 12 years. Um, and right now I'm working at a place called the Coalition in Need to Race Violence, as well as working with a number of different agencies to end gender race violence um, through a transformative justice lens. Awesome, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get into it and hear more uh, about that work. Um, you know, one of the reasons that, that I thought it was so important to, to speak with you is because you are a black, non-binary, relatively young person in this movement uh, doing this work. And that can be pretty rare. Um, and I often think about the fact that if this movement <clears throat> were at its healthiest point, if this movement were um, centering those most marginalized, then I think that what we would, we would instead see is, is a, a ton of leadership from folks that, that fit into the demographics that you fit into. We would see a lot of visibility. Um, so I wanted to ask to kind of start things off and ask you what, what your experience has been like as a black non-binary young person. Um, and of course, feel free to, to add to that um, in the ways that you identify doing this kind of work. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it's really interesting and important to note my intersections and to note that I'm not even just carrying my own personal identities with me. I'm also carrying all the people who have supported me in my journey who I don't identify with uh, in my gender or or in my ethnic orientations. It's um, I can see a lot of things that I think sometimes people cannot um, or choose not to or choose to ignore. And then when I choose to say something about those things, people get mad. Um, and so what I can say is that uh, I am, I have not left any of my jobs probably in the past 10 years on great terms with some of the leadership in those spaces. And the leadership has oftentimes been older white folks. Um, and I have thought about this so much. And I've thought about how I'm the common denominator in all of these things. And maybe it's just me and realize that no, the reasons why I left one of my earliest jobs on bad terms was because they um, they threatened me and they said, you know, Paris, your hair could potentially affect your success within this organization. And I was like, well, what does that mean? What exactly are you trying to tell me? Um, and then I've had a number of experiences since then trying to say, hey, like one of our students in this program uh, mentioned that there was this legislation passed in favor of, of queer people getting rights and creating safety for us. Um, and, and somebody told me, oh, well, I just don't think that this was the space for that. When every week we also talk about young black men being murdered, but we can't celebrate the peace and joy of queer people. Like what, like, what are these things about? And, and even just this weekend, um, I had a, I had a pretty, 
it wasn't in a workplace, but it's in a space that I really hold dear to myself, um, where I kind of asked, hey, what do folks in this space think about Blackness in this space or think about anti-Blackness within this space? And people started crying. People started saying, well, I've never made you feel this way and I've never done anything and you're attacking me. Um, and I like, and I, I've internalized these things at different times as maybe there's something going on with me. But what I've realized is that I'm pretty unapologetic and unwavering in my desire to see people be treated as well as possible. I'm really a person who wants to dig into the history of various spaces and make sure that we all kind of have a common understanding of those histories and how they intersect. Um, and when people can't see that, or when people have been taught to just focus on the positivity, um, but they can't see how it's either harming themselves or people around them, I think that it is hard to hear that this is not the utopia that we imagine. I think that there's some grieving that has to happen in that space. And people have to be willing to let go of an absolute. People have to be willing to let go of um, of the idea that their innocence is the only thing that uh, that makes them human and that makes them right. But yeah, there's a that question brings up a lot for me for now. No, I I, I really appreciate that you're you're talking about this tension of that I think exists in a lot of spaces, including a lot of workplaces and movement workplaces, where there's there's this idea that, you know, we don't have to call out everything that's wrong. We don't have to focus on the negative and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, what I, what my experience tells me and what I'm sort of gathering from, from what you're saying is, or at least what I'm reminded of from what you're saying is that, you know, the reality is that, that, that strategy of, of recognizing your wins and sort of casting aside the, the negatives and the problems and, and being, maybe slow to address them um, is more difficult, the more impacted by oppression that you are. Um, so like when, when you're a leader in an organization, when you're a white person, when you're a, a, a cis man, um, these are, are privileges that allow you to, to do that, to know that, hey, if I look, if I sort of look, over, look um, past this harm that I'm experiencing, then things will be okay for me. Whereas when you you have this experience of being consistently marginalized in a space, that can be really, really dangerous to say, hey, I'm gonna let this harm go. That can snowball. Um, so I, I just wanted to point out that that tension that I think that that you're experiencing in these spaces seems to be related to the fact that, again, that you have these identities as a, a Black person, as a, a genderqueer, non-binary person, as a younger person in professional spaces um, and are impacted by those, those experiences. Yeah, 100%. And I really want to name that uh, I saw a quote recently, the only people who, are, who aren't gonna be okay with you setting boundaries are the people who are benefiting from you not having them. Mm -hmm. And, and, I, and I think if I really wanna dig into that question a little bit more, part of what's been really hard for me is that um, I'm trying to find and establish a home within myself and also a home with other people. And that is really difficult as, as much as I don't like to put our business in the streets, like it has been very difficult 
to find Black spaces where transness is very well understood and is also understood as something that has existed pre-colonially in Black diaspora and African mm -hmm. communities. And I try to really make sure that people know within our continent, within the motherland, there are indigenous names for trans people, queer people, and also white folks don't know how to translate things perfectly. So there are spaces in which somebody may have read something and said, oh, this is a king, so it must have been a man. But that's not how the language was used. Masculinity and femininity as it is defined in Western culture and white European culture is not necessarily how it is in all places. And so the masculine feminine uh, dichotomy could have been used to explain uh, uh, royalty versus peasantry or whatever the words may be. Um, so really trying to get in there and explain to my community, the people that I identify with, my Black people and say, hey, like, uh, we have always existed here and it's because of white colonial threats that we've been pushed out of communities in, in a lot of cases. And also to know <laughs> that like trans and queer communities like are not like who are not specifically anti-Black or who are not specifically um, acknowledging anti-Blackness they're not safe for us either. Like we don't, like there's sometimes this onslaught of not feeling like I can catch a break and really, really wanting to, the reason why I bring these things up, the reason why, I, um, why I'm constantly seeing these things and saying something about it is because I am constantly impacted. And I'm also watching people constantly be impacted who may not even know that they're being impacted. Um, I was listening to a podcast, a really dope podcast called uh, Abolition X, and it, Richie Reseda, um, who did Feminist on Cell Block Y, if you haven't seen that documentary, I highly recommend, um, he was saying uh, that part of the reason why, why men are so violent towards trans people, towards queer people, is because they oftentimes feel that their power is derived from the patriarchal ladder, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, uh, if there's somebody coming along that doesn't, they don't know where to place in that ladder, then they don't know where their power exists, right? Mm -hmm. And so they have to, if they've been bent on pushing down queer people, pushing down children, pushing down women, and then this person comes along that's like, oh, maybe you're kind of masculine, but but you have these parts that I don't understand, um, <laughs> then they're challenged. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about what that also does to a man, what that also means for how limited their humanity can be, what they're allowed to feel, what they're allowed to express, who they're allowed to be, what kind of jobs they can have. Can they cook or do they have to grill? You know, all of these things that are just like, how, how do you live as a human being? How do you live to your fullest life if you're boxed into this little way of being? And I'm trying to get us all to like raise the baseline. Um, okay. So anyways, I'm gonna chill out on that for a minute. <laughs> no, I, I, I really appreciate um, that historical perspective um, that you brought here because I think one thing that 
that sometimes folks in our community might not realize is that uh, sexism, transphobia, transphobia um, homophobia, and these other types of oppression have been used historically as anti-Black mechanisms. Um, and so if we, if we go back to the days of, of enslaved people in this country, Black men were being asked to act a certain way. Um, black men's masculinity was, was being characterized in a certain way to justify violence towards them. Similar things, and I think often um, uh, more impactful against black women and, and black uh, non-binary and, and queer folks that did exist back then that we don't often acknowledge to the extent that we, that we should. Um, you know, these systems of, of oppression that occur within our community is also oppressing our community in anti-Black ways and being used as a mechanism uh, there and, and has been for so long. So I appreciate that historical point of view that you brought here. Um, I wanna shift gears a little bit, if that's okay with you. Um, in 2020, a lot of organizations made a commitment to interrupting racism and, and sometimes specifically around interrupting anti-Blackness, which at the time, you know, was a term that not everyone knew that that was, um, it was kind of new to be addressing anti-Blackness specifically um, in a lot of contexts. What do you think organizations that want to move in this direction need to know and understand? Uh, the difference between theory and practice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think that it's really, I'm happy for, for the ability to talk about what things can look like. Um, and also when I think about, when I think about what it looks like in practice to interrupt anti-Blackness is to make sure, first of all, it's just gonna benefit everybody <laughs> to make sure that everybody has healthcare, food, clean air, clean water, um, belonging wherever they are and are treated as full humans wherever they are. Um, it's, yeah, it's about being able to practice those things. And sometimes when I think about it, I'm really just like, you know, if we could just, like people will still work hard. <laughs> They'll just work hard at things that matter to them. Like, instead of, I know that one of my old friends, um, they they were looking for new jobs and trying to figure it out and they got a job offer from this company from a startup that was talking about um how can we help people figure out how to use their frequent flyer miles better and i'm like really like all this money out here and that's what people are choosing to spend it on mm -hmm. meanwhile looked at the seattle city budget in 2020 and I looked at how much money was going towards uh, public safety. So, you know, policing, fire safety, all of these things. And I believe, um, I believe there was 7.56 million going towards public safety. About 4.8 million of that was going towards policing in particular. And then uh, social services or human services, healthcare and education had 3.42 million to split between the three. Mm. And I was thinking about like, what would it look like if companies actually invested in those things, if 
And if we're thinking about companies and businesses in the more broad sense is also government organizations, um, what would it look like to put your money towards, <laughs> towards people, movements, organizations that are making sure that people have the food they need? You know, I think that people try to like demonize uh, folks for choosing to live outside if they so choose. I'm like, well, what if people could live outside because there was enough food on the streets? Like I've gone places in the world where I knew that if I was ever homeless again, that I would I would not be hungry in this place because there's avocado trees everywhere. There's mm -hmm. mangoes. There's like all this food that grows everywhere. Or that like, there are safe and clean public bathrooms in these places. Um, I, yeah, like I just think about what it would mean for, like, I'm just thinking of all these very specific examples. There's a larger bucket to all this stuff, but I'm thinking of like this one time when I saw somebody get kicked out of QFC for, um, for stealing an apple and and the security guard like was like, yeah, bet you won't do that again. Like just really, like really leaning into the power that they had been handed. And I couldn't help but think about Bacon's Rebellion. <laughs> I couldn't mm -hmm. help but think about uh, when there was a revolt in this country because some white dude didn't have the land that he wanted and then uh, brought some black folks, some indentured servants and some enslaved black folks uh, into this into this revolution that he was trying to, to create for himself um, or into this revolt that he was trying to create for himself. Um, and it ended up failing. And the, a lot of the people that were involved were murdered, um, but they allowed some white folks to stay alive and also said, okay, so we know that y'all, y'all kind of fucked us up. Like, <laughs> we know that y'all might actually have some power here if this happens again. So how about we make sure that you get some of the power and the status that we have as the white elite in this space? Because not everybody, not all whites were considered whites. Not all Europeans were considered whites at the time, right? So the, the indentured servants now had a a higher status as at least you're not black because you can help us keep these uh these enslaved folks in line mm -hmm. and i think about how that still persists to this day where you give somebody a little bit of power you put them in a security position and instead of saying if somebody is stealing they may be hungry here's a list of service agencies that you can refer them to to make sure that they can get some money shelter housing food etc instead they say kick them out onto the street or call the police or tase them, do some kind of harm to them. And that is the way that we're going to keep them from doing it again. Not how are we going to make sure that they have the resources they need so they don't got to come up in here and take our shit. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of how organizations have so many, so many different options, so many resources to use that could really lean towards uh, that could really lean towards just making sure that everybody's just getting their needs met. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think the thing, you know, about that example is that folks buy into that, you know, beyond the security guard, uh, who, whose job it is to uphold that, I'm sure that there were other folks who were witnessing it saying, yeah, put them, put them out on the streets, you know, or, or yeah, don't let them get away with that. Um, 
And I think we, we see that in our organization sometimes, particularly when we're doing social work or providing uh, services to the community where it's like, hey, that person didn't show up on time to their appointment. All right, well, they can reschedule. You know, we're not, we're not gonna go out of our protocol. And, you know, all of these barriers that we create to sort of um, oftentimes like keep people in line. Um, and I think that we can kind of take that individual example and expand it to the ways that our organizations are, are structured. And you can really see how anti-Blackness can be maintained in, in some of these spaces to keep folks in line. I think, you know, I, I really appreciate what you highlighted there about the fact that that person um, gets power out of sort of oppressing or, or sending this person out. And I think we see that in our organizations as well. Totally. You know, there's, I like, there are specific ways in which Black people are impacted. And I think part of what I want to drive home, not to, not to negate any of the light that absolutely needs to be shined specifically on our communities, but I really want, I want white folks to know, and I want all non-Black folks to know how it actually impacts them to not pay attention to anti-Blackness. Like, I'm thinking specifically of the fact that Climate Pledge Arena um, used to be key, used to be key arena. Every year there used to be a clinic, or not every year, but year after year, we've had this clinic um, where we could send folks who otherwise could not afford health care. And they were supposed to bring it back this year. And they book shows right over it. And I don't think that people are really putting together that it is not something nice to do for people. It is life and death for people. Like I have worked in a shelter in Seattle and I've worked with a lot of Seattle's homeless community, homeless youth who are at risk of losing their legs, who are at risk of losing their lives, who are at risk of not being able, like people want to say, well, so-and-so just doesn't want to work. And it's like, if so-and-so can't get health care and their, their health needs are not taken care of, then yes, they cannot show up to work. It is not about a want to or not want to. It is about the fact that there are spaces, there are organizations that have resources that are hoarding these resources instead of putting them back into making sure that people get their needs met and then people can't work, can't like, and not that it's even about work because I don't value people and myself in that way. It's just this loop of, of people saying like, well, you can't do what I want you to do. But, right, right. I'm, yeah, I'm trailing off on that one because it just it's just very upsetting. But mm -hmm. long story short, my thought about that is, Climate Pledge Arena off is like making a big claim to put on their on their largest billboard that we are somebody who's focused on climate change. We are someone who's focused on on making the world a better place. But yet you would just schedule over something that makes sure that people can stay alive in the city who otherwise cannot literally cannot afford to within a capitalist system. Mm -hmm. 
So kind of on this topic, one thing I, I want to ask you about is, uh, again, all these organizations making a commitment to interrupting racism, interrupting anti-Blackness, and being anti-racist. There's also a history where a lot of Black folks and folks of color in this movement, in these organizations, have been harmed to the point where folks have, have left these organizations, have left this movement. And I have no doubt that there are people on the streets today um, as a result of experiencing harm in a sexual violence advocacy center or domestic violence shelter um, and losing their employment. Um, I've seen enough Black folks lose their employment in these contexts that statistically that has to have had those consequences for at least a, a, a percentage of them. Um, as an expert on transformative justice, how can organizations be accountable for harm that has happened in the past as they try to move in this, this anti-racist direction? I think you really hit, uh, hit the nail with the word accountability. I think that a lot of people don't know what that means in practice. And I think that a lot of people don't know what accountability looks like or means outside of outside of a criminal justice, white supremacist context, right? And my hope is that we can, like, well, one, I can say it's a hope because I want us to create more ways of creating accountability for different kinds of harm that show up so that people are able to, um, to imagine what it can look like to be accountable without being further harmed. Um, I also know that there are ways that people create accountability um, where they have the resources to basically say, not my white child, like, you're not going to jail. Like, I'm going to make sure that I bail you out. I'm going to make sure that I make sure that you get home so we can talk about what it was that led to you being in that position in the first place. And I'm gonna do everything that I can with all the money, the connections and things that I have to make sure that you can stay out of that system, right? And so we already know that there are examples of ways of creating accountability. Um, I think when we talk about organizations who have caused harm to black people, I think being able to name that harm, being able to acknowledge that harm so that the people who have been harmed can say, okay, like somebody finally acknowledges and says that it's happened. Um, and I think that first and foremost, that does a lot for us to just be able to, to collectively say that it has happened, especially in spaces where people would be hellbent on saying that it has not. And they have the power and the connections and the resources to, to write history as this has not happened, to make people sign NDAs so that they can't talk about the fact that it's happened. Um, there are so many ways in which, in which we're silenced after harm has happened. So first of all, being able to name that it has happened and then going to, to that person um, and I don't mean going to, you can't go to the local organization that supports Black people and say, I'm going to donate money. You need to go to the person that you harmed mm -hmm. and say, what would it take to be in right relationship with you and be open to an ongoing relationship in which that repair can happen? Because it's not going to happen. It most likely, 
did not happen in a vacuum in a one-time moment it's likely something that has been ongoing and so you have to be in a relationship with that person with that community uh to figure out what are the needs what are the ongoing needs what are the needs that we mentioned back in 1619 that happened in 1964 1968 2000 and so on like we've been asking for a lot of the same shit for a long time and we haven't gotten it. And so mm. in order to actually be accountable to that kind of repair, you have to be willing to go the long game. You have to be willing to say, this isn't something that I can just throw $10,000 at. And some people may say that $10,000 is a lot of money, but we know how much money is out here floating through these agencies. Mm -hmm. We know what money can be spent on and we know what $10,000 can do for, for a group of people, but we also know that it is not going to be something that can end the kind of anti-Black racism that we experience. So I'm not gonna say that there is any one way to resolve, um, to resolve the harm that is caused, but I think really understanding a process of accountability as a space where you stop and you take reflection and you say, what, what is the harm that I have caused here? And then you acknowledge the harm and you ask for insight as like, is there anything more that I'm missing that I need to be aware of so that I can reflect on that and figure out what I can do? And then you need to go back with that person or with that group and say, I'm willing to repair with you. I really want to figure that out. That person or that group might say, nah, like I'm really not with you right now and it's all good. I'm just going to move on. But also that person may come back and say, you know what, I thought about it and actually what would be helpful is the fact that I'm now living on the street or I've been struggling with housing since then or I've had to move states and I incurred a lot of costs because of that it would be really helpful for you to help me make up some if not all of that money that was lost um, and then commit to change behavior and I'm using Mia Mingus's um, uh, a practice of accountability. She, I don't know exactly what it's called, but she has a way to um, to practice accountability that I think works really well for a lot of folks. Um, but the last step in there is change behavior, because we're not trying to fix this one situation. We're trying to make sure that that kind of harm can never happen to anybody again, um, and that if it does, that we can go back and say, "This is what we've learned. Here's how we're going to move forward and make sure that." Once again, we're trying to make sure that this doesn't happen to people over and over again. Right, and I think one thing that I, I wanna name that I, I'm hearing sort of across these steps is the process of giving up power. Um, I think oftentimes when I see organizations attempt to be accountable and repair harm, one thing that they're unwilling to do is give up that power. And like you said, to follow the lead of the person who's harmed. They want to be the ones who, um, who come up with the solution. You know, they wanna be the ones that, that have the conversation on, on their terms. Um, and in, in many ways that feels very contradictory of the, the process of accountability. Yeah, and you know, I, I think, Giving up power. Eh. I guess sharing power is another way to put it. No, both like, give it up. <laughs> give me the money. Where's the check? Like, um, but, and sharing power. I think both of these things are important. 
I think part of what I think is really important for folks to know is that there is there is an emotional embodied process to figuring out how to do that. And I and I really wish that I wish that more people in powerful positions knew how to acknowledge like what happens within your body, what happens within your emotions, what happens like psychologically within you when you realize that you have power over somebody that you've been using in negative ways and harmful ways. And it is not our job as the harm parties to fix that for you, but you do have to find some space to figure out how do I grieve my innocence? How do I let myself be human enough to say, I am not innocent in this. I have caused harm. I will likely cause harm again. And I don't want to focus on my innocence so much that I can't say that I've caused harm and be accountable to changing the conditions that made that harm possible. Um, and acknowledge my own individual actions and beliefs and behaviors that made that harm happen. So yeah, I just think that there's a there's a very important layer of being able to notice, am I puffing out my chest now because somebody said that I did something wrong and now I feel like I gotta stand up for myself because I gotta be bigger than everybody else and not noticing that Maybe I'm puffing out my chest because I'm scared and I maybe I need to take a step back and say, I really didn't intend to do that. And that's why I'm puffing out my chest. That's why I'm yelling or that's why I'm about to go write this sneaky ass email, <laughs> you know, because um, that's what we do. I think and nobody's exempt from that. Um, but if you cannot recognize what happens in that space, in that emotional space, then yes, you are going to continue to use the power that you have in illegitimate, harmful ways. Right, and I think that connects to what you were talking about earlier, where a lot of folks don't know what accountability is outside of uh, white supremacist, patriarchal uh, sort of um, conceptions of it that really manifest themselves in punishment. Um, so there's this automatic default assumption that, oh, you want me to be accountable? You want me to answer for, for the racial harm that I did? You want me to be punished? You want me to lose things? You, you know, like this is, a, this is gonna be a loss for me. When I think oftentimes, you know, I, I go back to when I, I used to work with um, uh, young black and brown, um, young men around um, masculinity. Um, and we would talk about sexism and how we've engaged in it and how we can repair that harm and, and, and do things a little bit different. And often the response that I would get in the beginning is to say, hey, you're just making me feel guilty. You're just making me feel shame. And I would often reframe that and say, you could, you could see it that way. The way that I see it is I'm, I'm, I'm helping you to understand that you have a responsibility. And I think guilt and shame and responsibility are so connected, but the way that we do punishment in this society often causes guilt and causes shame, does not cause responsibility, does not create opportunity, which I think is another um, term that's sort of connected here is that when you, when somebody says, hey, I need you to be accountable for that harm, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to build relationship, to build community. To move and closer. 
Exactly. It's an opportunity to connect. And I think, yeah, so often we don't, again, I, I think it really goes back to that, that point that you made at the beginning of this, uh, of your answer to this question, which is that we just can't conceive about accountability outside of punishment and accountability as something that is, doesn't take away from us, but, but builds us up, builds up our community, builds up our relationships. Yes, and I want to say like on so many different levels, when there is a power dynamic involved, whether it's intergenerationally, whether it's through gender, uh, gender imbalances or gender power imbalances, there, there is this way that in my own personal experience and also within so many organizations that I've worked with, um, I've tried to get people to recognize that when I'm bringing these things up, it is an intention to move closer together. It is an intention to try to say, you are causing me harm. And I also recognize your humanity. Like, I'm not telling you that like you can't do anything better. I'm just saying that in order for me to continue on in this relationship, I need to know that you know that something is wrong. Something happened, something hurt me. Um, otherwise, I have to move away from this relationship because I have no guarantee that you're not going to do it again or do it more harmfully. And I think within our gender-based violence movement, we really know how that shit can turn out. Like, we really know that, like, an inability to be accountable can lead to death. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and it can lead to people being fired and it can lead to a lot of other harmful things. When I think that the intention, I think that a lot of folks would much prefer that, that we figure out how to make sure that we move towards that love, safety, belonging, dignity uh, that people are seeking. Mm -hmm. But there's something that happens in that space that we really got to get a hold of. Right. So a lot of your work integrates an abolitionist approach. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the role that abolition has in our efforts to end gender-based violence and, and other types of oppression as well? For sure. Abolition is so scary. It's such a scary word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which, like, I, I just want to, um, just to, like, point out something that I think about often is that we've taken this, this approach that was used to end enslavement in our country, and now it's scary. You know, you know, and I, I just want to point that out, that, you know, like the, if you look at the history of this term, how did it get here? And I'm glad that's where you went because it's exactly what my sarcasm meant, just in case anybody's listened to this and couldn't <laughs> pick up on my, my eye roll or my, the tone of my voice, because sometimes I'm kind of flat. But anyways, um, when I think of abolition, the first person that comes to mind is Harriet Tubman. And I don't think that that's what comes to mind for people anymore. I think that what comes to mind for people is, is cop cars burning. I'm not going to say my own feelings on that, but I will say that there was a lot of legislative changes going on when some shit was going down. Right. Um, but abolition to me is really it's about building uh practices and ways of being together in community that make sure people get their needs met um and really moving away from a one-size-fits-all kind of uh response to harm one kind of harm could be somebody is violently attacked another kind of harm is theft and we use the same system and the same methods 
to try to create some kind of justice rather than saying, what is going on in these situations for these kinds of harms to happen? Uh, let's figure out what would be an appropriate response to create accountability, to create repair, change behaviors, and make sure that everybody's getting their needs met in both of these situations, because they're different. Rather than saying, let's call on the police where somebody might get shot, somebody might be further criminalized, somebody who was stealing might end up now in this system and in this cycle where they're going to be criminalized, they could go to jail, they could have this thing on their record, it's gonna be hard for them to get jobs, they're probably gonna to have to get out and then they're probably gonna start stealing again. Eventually they're gonna end up back in prison or, you know, so instead of having this loop of response that is not support, or that's not supporting um, liberation, that's not supporting us in getting to a better society in which we can say, okay, excuse me, it was harmful for that person to steal, but what led to them having to steal in the first place? And then saying, okay, we're gonna make sure that you have everything you need in order to not steal again. And in some cases, the person's gonna steal it anyways, and then we gotta figure out another response. But it should never be, this person is going to be locked away forever and is going, <clears throat> or is going to get shot by this government entity that has been given license to kill. I just don't think in any, in any civilized society that that is the correct response to most kinds of harm. So I, I have a, a quick question because I think that, I think a, a lot of folks might be able to connect to, to some of the examples that you're providing, uh, you know, and <laughs> say like, hey, someone who steals should not be incarcerated. We should not be doing this to folks that are that are stealing baby formula and other needed items. But I think where I've noticed that folks have a lot of trouble is when it comes to domestic violence, when it comes to sexual violence, when it comes to even murder. What do you say to somebody who is struggling with that? You know, how can we take a different path when it comes to somebody who's, who's done what I think they would describe as these heinous crimes? Yeah, I think that you still have to look at what happened in those in those cases. There is no one catch all solution because all of these scenarios can be so different. And and I there's something specifically on my mind that I'm not sure how much detail I can I can spill about, but I know situations in which young people are being charged with a murder in a situation where their harm doer or their, some people may know that as abuser, um, was repeatedly causing harm for them over a period of time, right? And then, uh, and then the person who was being harmed in that situation snaps and ends up murdering the person that had been continuously causing harm to them. And then that person is criminalized for defending themselves. And so when you go, when you ask that question, Darren, the first thing that I think of is how people are criminalized for survival. Mm -hmm. People end up in these situations where harm is happening to them. And then they have, they have no other choice but to make sure that this harm cannot continue to happen because they are fearing for their lives or their lives and their lives actually are threatened. 
Um, and so if we continue to shout out to Miriam Kaba for helping uh, for all of the work that she does, but there's a particular something that I was listening to where she was talking about how if we continue to create this long list of criminalizations, then we're just gonna end up at some point with all of these things that we cannot do or that we're going to end up with this long list of things that we're just gonna end up being locked away for, murdered for, et cetera, because that's what the criminal justice system currently does. Instead of saying, what happened in these scenarios? What led up to this? How are we going to make sure that, uh, that people have training to understand how their violence is showing up in the world? How are we going to make sure that people understand what, um, what the steps are and the behaviors are that lead up to somebody being this harmful? How do we make sure that people have relationship skills so that they can notice what abuse even looks like um, in the early stages before it gets to the point of it being so harmful? And how do we make sure that bystanders know what it looks like so that they can intervene as much as possible? Um, I think abolition is about creating all of those ways so that when people when people end up in these situations that are harmful, that are causing them to potentially cause more harm, that we aren't then causing, that we're not then causing further harm. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like there is, there's a shorter way that I wanna put this, uh, but there's an emotional response that I'm having because I'm working with some people right now who are actually in a very similar situation. Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of pulling me out at the moment. So I'm just going to take a second to breathe. Okay. Well, one thing that I'm, that I'm seeing is, you know, when we think uh, structurally and institutionally about the movement to end gender-based violence and, and how it has moved into implementing some of these carceral approaches to addressing domestic violence, addressing sexual violence, addressing gender-based violence, um, is that ultimately through what you're describing and through, I think, you know, like you said, Miriam Kaba's work and a lot of folks work around abolition, um, when we don't do what you're, you're advocating for, when we continue to criminalize folks to not understand why they committed these, um, these acts and, and why they did what they did and, and how we can prevent that from happening, we are in a, in a sense reinforcing the very violence that we're trying to prevent. Totally. Does that sound does that sound accurate? Like that's what I'm getting. That's what I'm gathering from from kind of um, some of the the points that you're making. Totally. I um, a friend of mine. Uh, she's so amazing. Um, I'm gonna say her name, and hopefully, I'll check in with her about whether or not she wants her name in this podcast. So, um, her name is Cheryl Ingram, and she she taught me this way of thinking about the ABCs, attitudes, behaviors, and conditions, and how they influence each other. And, um, and I think about how our beliefs about, how do I say it? So our conditions right now are that a lot of people don't know systems of accountability outside of the criminal justice system. And so a lot of their beliefs about that is that like, oh, well, if somebody does harm, then like that's the right response. But in fact, it is the only 
response that we have right now, or people think and believe that it's the only response. Therefore, their actions are oftentimes in alignment with that. Rather than saying, what would it look like to end this harm on a systemic level, on an interpersonal level? Because we are not oftentimes able to look at, um, we're not we're not all able to, to look at the systemic harm that's caused and treat that as um, treat that as akin to the interpersonal harm. People mm -hmm. see folks getting punched in the face and they uh, gasp. But people see people being murdered by the state. People see prison fights. People, people may not know all the time that there are guards in prisons who purposely cause fights to break out. People mm -hmm. being put into a, a dark room with no windows for months, even years at a time. And they don't have the same uh, physiological response to that. They don't have the same feelings about that as they would about somebody being punched in the face. And so part of what abolition is about is also teaching people that that is just as much violent. Mm -hmm. Those systemic ways of making sure that people can't eat or are locked in a hole or, um, or just, just treated as less than any being that deserves food, water, shelter, connection, um, and to not, not be further harmed. I, I feel like I'm repeating myself at this point, but it, it feels like it constantly needs to be repeated. But being able to see that a system that locks people away, make sure that they likely will end up back in that system and then uses their bodies uh, to, to, to build wealth, mm -hmm. to, yeah, to, to just, do all kinds of things. Like that is not a just system. That is not a system. Uh, that is not a way of creating a better, more safe future. Um, criminal justice, in my opinion, is not about creating a more safe future, in my right. opinion, in my understandings and the work that I've done to really dig into and understand the criminal justice system builds and protects the wealth of white people and mostly white men at that. Mm -hmm. It is not a way of creating more safety. It is a response after harm has happened that inflicts more harm on people and does not address the root of that harm. What right. I am about, what abolition is about, what transformative justice is about is looking and saying, where are the roots of this harm? How can we dig all of that shit up? and then say, okay, now with this information that I have, I wanna make sure that this isn't even possible, that the conditions that we live in raise the bar for every human being so high to live in their most liberated, most healthy and well self that people respond to harm happening, to all kinds of systemic and interpersonal harm as, oh, that like that's completely wrong. How do I intervene in that situation to make sure that that harm doesn't happen? How do I make sure that that person has the skills and tools to support themselves in that situation? How do I make sure that the person that's causing harm has the tools to say, oh, I didn't mean to do that. And instead of saying, 
I'm going to protect my innocence, say, you know what, I see that I'm causing harm in this situation. Let me back up and figure out what I need to do. And also let me know if there's something that, you know, I need to do, you know, like that's what it's all about. Right. Right. And I, I appreciate that, that definition of these institutions, these uh, carceral institutions as maintaining the, the systems of oppression, maintaining white supremacy, maintaining patriarchy, because when you see it in that lens, then it is inherently non-rehabilitative because these, you know, these systems aren't gonna, aren't going to destroy themselves. And so there, these, the uh, carceral systems as a result are not going to stop incarcerating people or not, it's not gonna reduce incarcerating people so long as that serves those goals. Um, so it's it, even inherent in your definition um, is a lack of, of rehabilitation, is that punishment. Um, I just I, want to I, say one more thing before we oh, move yeah, on yeah. from that. Jump um, just thinking about like what we invest in, like looking at it from that standpoint, if you really want to take it from like a mathematical, I think that in a Western society, like mathematics, not that we didn't have our, we have mathematics, we've been having mathematics, but like in Western society, a numbers game kind of outrules a lot of everything else. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to follow the money, look at what your city is investing in. Mm -hmm. Are they investing in the precursors to safety? Or are they investing in a response that happens afterwards that actually doesn't make sure that people have what they need in the first place? Right. And then figure out what you want to do about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, something that I, I want to talk about that I, I think we've spoken on before um, is how a lot of Black folks, a lot of BIPOC folks, Black folks, Indigenous people, and, and people of color um, are advocating for change in their communities and workplaces in new, radical, and disruptive ways. Um, I think this has a lot to do with, with, you know, as we talked about before, a lot of individuals and organizations committing to anti-racism in 2020. So, you know, they put out these public statements, these gestures about anti-racism. So now, you know, that, that provides some leverage to really hold them accountable um, in very visible ways sometimes. Um, but I want to talk about a tension that I, I think sometimes exists where we're only able to do the, this advocacy in this way because the folks who came before us who did their advocacy in ways that, you know, where, where they couldn't do what some of the things that some of the more disruptive um, ways that were uh, challenging racism in 2022. Um, and sometimes we share a workplace or other spaces with with BIPOC elders who are caught off guard by, uh, by the methodology, you know, and saying back in my day, I would have been, if I did that, I would have been fired. Back in my day, if I, if I did that, I would have been killed. Um, and they're hundred percent correct about that. Um, but I think uh, that creates a tension um, that I, I know, I think doesn't always go acknowledged by I think younger folks like myself and yourself, um, and uh, so that's what I want to talk about. How can we navigate this in a way that makes room for, for these new strategies while also acknowledging and validating the experiences and the work of our elders? Yeah, I think 
just before we we hopped into the podcast, we were talking about how language can really shape the way that we think about things. And I think if there's one piece of language that I would want to give to folks is intergenerational healing and really digging into what that means. Um, I, I know that I've had conversations with my elders that have went completely left because I wasn't willing to see things from their perspective and they were not willing to see things from mine. Um, and I look at how that, how that shapes elections because if we're being real honest, like uh, as young people, uh, our power in the society is different. We're not holding the positions of power that our elders are. Mm -hmm. um, and so on one hand, like they can just swing their dicks wherever they want and then, or whatever pieces they want to swing, uh, <laughs> wherever they want. And then we'll have to deal with the repercussions because although we have power in numbers and we know how to organize in different ways, um, they may just be sitting in positions where they can make our jobs a lot harder. And so if we don't figure out how to heal together, if we don't figure out how to have um, have reverence for the fact that what our elders did was make sure that we could survive until now. Um, if we don't have that kind of reverence for what they've been able to do and a gratitude and being able to say, I appreciate what you've done. Um, and what is also true is that we need new ways of doing things because I'm still dealing with the same things that you were. And I don't think that that was your intention as my elder. I think that you want us to move forward. I think that you've wanted things to be better for us. And they are in some ways, and I appreciate you for that. You still, like, we still gotta find another way to get to our next steps because your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, my godchildren, um, my nieces and nephews, like I'm not trying to have them go through the same thing that my grandmother went through. Fun fact, um, my I found out when I was organizing a union at one of my previous workspaces um, that my grandmother actually used to work with a union that I was working with at that time. And I can only imagine <laughs> what that experience must have been like. Mm -hmm. um, I have watched my mother go through the same things as my grandmother. I have gone through some of the same things as my grandmother, and I do not want to watch my niece or any of my godchildren go through the same things. And so um, I really need my elders to understand that that is the place where a lot of our passion is coming from as young folks, um, and also that they likely did some things similar that their elders did not agree with. Um, and so trying to figure out how we can talk about this thing that happens generation after generation. It ain't nothing new. Every generation has a new way of doing things. And we can't every single generation uh, have to fight with each other in order to make that happen. We need language, we need stories that help us um, that help us see this as a regular phenomenon that happens every single maybe every five to ten years right because what what has happened so far is that i feel like some folks are like well we can only work on one thing a decade right. so if we had um loving versus virginia and so now folks can interracially marry and then a couple years later a couple decades later now we have to have the such a similar fight for marriage equality for lgbtq folks like why why do we have to treat that as a new thing right 
one. I think there's a there's a number of things going on, but I, I really wanted to, to have this conversation because I know it, it can be painful for folks who um, were not allowed or, or, or were would, would have faced consequences for speaking up in their workplaces in the way that we do today. Um, and I, I think it's it's important not to just gloss over that. Um, and in addition to the fact that, you know, context is different as well. We have different tools. So one thing that I often point to is, is email. Um, a lot of workplace discrimination cases have relied on email, um, which did not exist in any uh, popular way 20 years ago in the workplace. And so, you know, there are, uh, in addition to all these things that, that you um, that you brought up as well. Um, there's also like different tools that we have um, where we can ensure that things have a digital receipt, you know, and we can we can say, you know, instead of, hey, we had a meeting behind closed doors six weeks ago, um, and I I wrote down my impression of it on this on this notepad. We can say, hey, this is that email that you sent me, or this is what I received from my coworker or something like that. I think, you know, yeah. all of these various things um, just create a different workplace where, where different strategies are required. Yeah, and I also, um, I don't remember where this quote came from, but, you know, talk shit until shit changes. Um, you know, be careful about the spaces that you do it in, but creating spaces where you have folks of similar identities or of similar struggles in your workplace uh, get together outside of the workplace, figure out where those common struggles are so that you can identify it as not something that's happened to you as an individual, but as an ongoing pattern in the workplace. And when you can establish those patterns, nobody can tell you that it's just like, oh, well, you just need to step up and do work harder or whatever it may be. Um, you get to then say, okay, we have documented evidence. Now you can say, I have my story, but I also have seven other stories that say the same thing so how could it possibly just be that I need to work harder or that I just need to put my nose down I love that you're bringing that into this conversation because I I know that there's this this tension where um folks in this movement want to create affinity groups want to create spaces for black advocates black staff or um LGBT advocates LGBT staff or black LGBT advocates and staff um, because as you mentioned at the beginning Sometimes those just black uh, spaces are not safe for LGBT black folks. Sometimes the LGBT um, spaces for all um, racial backgrounds are not safe for black, for LGBT black folks as well. Um, Shit, even at that, sometimes the LGBT spaces leave out the T and the Q. So, exactly. <laughs> you and know. I, exactly. And I, I think that's often something that, that folks don't recognize is that sexual orientation and gender identity often lump these things together and, and put folks in the room, not acknowledging that there are different experiences there. Um, but I just, I love that you mentioned that as sort of a making the case that it is incredibly important to have these affinity spaces if we want to address these issues in our organizations. And I think we often see some pushback where it's like, oh, I don't, I don't really wanna, wanna do that or we have to create an equal space for everyone or something like that when the reality is it's so important to have these shared understandings um, separate from the dominant group. And at the same time, I want to acknowledge that this is how this movement started. 
this is how folks have been organizing to end gender-based violence, to end sexual violence, to end domestic violence from the beginning was often um, people who were not cisgendered men getting together and saying, hey, this violence is happening in our communities. How can we organize against it? So this is consistent with our movement. For folks who are listening to this podcast, the way that Darren and I got connected was because there were a couple of friends that recognized that we had similar, uh, we had similar challenges within the gender-based violence movement um, and that we had, uh, we had both done some organizing to say, there like we know that there has to be other people out here having a similar experience. Um, and then so me, Darren and Valeriana got together and started doing these FUBU Fridays. And since then we just been thick as thieves as they say. <laughs> exactly. And our work has been that much more effective because we're able to do what we're talking about here, which is share our experience, compare, contrast and strategize. How can we eliminate this? How can we eliminate this, this anti-Blackness happening in our organizations? Um, yeah. On that note, how can folks find you? How can folks work, work for you and, and hear or learn more about your work? Yeah, um, I will give you my Instagram. It is at Ancestral Exhale, um, or you can find me at PL Chapman 2 on Instagram. Either of those will work. Um, you can also reach me at paraschapmancoaching at gmail.com. Um, those are the best ways to get a hold of me for now. Awesome. And I'll, I'll just say, um, is it mappingprevention.com or mappingprevention.org? .org, mappingprevention.org. Okay, so that, that's a project that both myself and Paris worked on that's about alternative responses to gender-based violence prevention in our, in our communities that are community-led. Um, so I encourage folks to check that out too, because I know that you drove a lot of that project and um, it is centered around the Seattle community, but I think lots and lots of communities um, it can take a look at that. It's very easy to read, very digestible and, and learn about these various other approaches to preventing violence that are rooted in community that do center marginalized communities. So again, that's, that's mappingprevention.org. Yes, yes. All right. Thank you so much, Paris. All right. Well, that does it for today's podcast. Thank you for joining us for this conversation on anti-Blackness and the movement to end gender-based violence. We encourage you to reflect deeply on what you've heard, what you've learned today, and think about how you can implement that in your communities and your organizations. We also welcome you to reach out to some of the guests in this series of podcasts for organizational technical assistance, consulting, training, and other services. If you haven't already, please do check out the rest of the podcasts in this series. This series of podcasts on anti-Blackness and the movement to end gender-based violence includes five conversations that are five different perspectives in this movement, five different experiences. I think what you'll find is that sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't. There's something to gather from each and every single one of them. And again, we encourage you to listen to the entire series of these podcasts.